0: But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? Each week, we dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio. Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon, with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger.
1: Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. We are celebrating seven years of sports business radio this week. Thanks for all of your great listening over the years. We're very excited. Hopefully, seven more years ahead. In our next segment, sports business radio headlines. We've got some updates from the Masters with the NFL hearings. A lot of legalities there. We'll have all of those for you in our next segment. In segment three, Maury Brown with the com. We're going to examine the top sports business storylines of 2011 and the major league baseball season then in segment four it's been 25 years since jack nicholas stunned the sports world by winning the 1986 masters at age 46 he was four shots back entering the final round shot a 65 on his way to winning the final major and his sixth green jacket nicholas joined me on sports business radio in 2008 we look back on that conversation this week it's my favorite conversation in the seven years I've hosted this show lots coming up on this edition of sports business radio thanks for joining us we'll be right back this is SBR back with more after this we tell the story of us how we met and the
0: It's time, baby.
2: Special news bulletin.
0: At Sports Business Radio, we're always on top of what's happening in the world of sports. And each week, we break down the stories you need to know about. This is Headlines. I want to be in the headlines. On
1: Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. I need to be
2: in the headlines
1: headline number one CBS and Turner earned the best rating and the most viewers for the NCAA tournament otherwise known as March Madness since 2005 the tournament averaged a 6.4 Nielsen rating 10.2 million viewers during the 2011 NCAA men's basketball tournament again highest ratings since 2005 Griggs the finals Butler UConn a stinker down 18% that's not good but across all of the platforms, you know, and, and we factor in the online March Madness on demand. It's 13.7 million hours of stream video. That's up 17% from 2010. We wondered before the tournament, is the online viewing gonna suffer? Because now you can watch every game live across four networks CBS, TBS, TNT, and True TV. Did not hurt the numbers online at all. Actually, they were up 17%. Yeah, and I uh, actually did watch a couple online. It was cool, it's it's nice. I mean, they have it set up great. You you just click, 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 and you're boom, you're in. So it was fun watching them online, but of course TV, too. The coverage was great. It was a fun tournament. I just was really disappointed in that championship game. I felt terrible for Butler, but, uh, you know, it's bad for basketball, college basketball, when that's your preeminent game. That's the game everyone's tuning into, and when it's such a stinker, I think a lot of people turn the game off at halftime. Our next headline, the federal judge overseeing the NFL players' request to lift a lockout by the owners said it will take a couple of weeks to, To rule, Griggs, U.S. District Court Judge Susan Richard Nelson needs to do her homework a little bit more, needs to review some paperwork. She urged both sides to get back to the bargaining table. Now, this isn't going to happen. They're not going to go to the bargaining table because the players right now are a trade association. They're not a union. They're not going to reform a union and go back to the bargaining table or they lose all leverage. This will be taken out of the courts. It would be thrown out all the antitrust laws that they're trying to fight. Those wouldn't be able to happen. So, again, as we told you a few weeks ago, the winners here, the lawyers. The longer this goes on, the more dramatic and drawn out it is. The lawyers are the ones who come out ahead. I think if you're an NFL fan, the chances of the season starting on time took a big hit this week because the judge didn't come in and say, okay, I'm going to rule one way or another. She said, I need a few weeks. This is going to drag on through the court system, and it doesn't look like the two sides are going to get together to try and bargain, and the players aren't going to form a union because they're a trade association. You factor all those things in together, I'm not sure we're going to start the season on time, and if you had asked me three months ago, I would have bet against that. I would have said, yes, the season will start on time, the sides will find a way to make this happen, but I'm not so encouraged now. Yeah, I agree with you, and like you said, the more it gets into the courts, the more lawyers involved, the longer it's going to take, because they're just going to keep <laughs> pushing it out. They're the ones that are, you know, it's their job, it's their dream job, probably, if you're a lawyer right now, but it's just going to get keep push- pushed out, get more confusing and more of a mess. I don't think August is going to bring us football. The players say their careers are being irreparably harmed by the lockout, the owner say Judge Nelson doesn't have the jurisdiction to issue an injunction while there's a complaint before the National Labor Relations Board. And then the lockout obviously was imposed by the owners three weeks ago after negotiations for a new collective bargaining agreement broke off. In the meantime, the NFL draft is coming up in just a few weeks, and players will be drafted. They can't sign a contract. They can't talk to their coaches, trainers. They can't report to the facility. They can't have a press conference. So uh, not very good for the NFL right now. Our last headline of the week, the Masters. It's underway, and here's something for 2012 that you're gonna wanna keep your eye on. Chairman Billy Payne of Augusta National said that some Masters tournament tickets will be on sale to the public starting in 2012. The Masters, not saying how many, but Griggs, there's these badges, and for years and years, the badges have been passed down uh, through families. They haven't been available to the public. Now they're going to be available to the public. The other thing that's interesting about the Masters is, you know, they've always been this very stuffy organization. They don't play well with others. They control the CBS broadcast. They actually buy the time and sell their own advertising. They've partnered with Tiger Woods, of all people, and EA Sports on a golf video game. So, you know, you could never play Augusta National in any golf video games because they had the licensing rights. Well, now they've partnered with EA and Tiger, and you can play this. And Billy Payne even says that he's played with his 12 year old grandson. What in the world is going on when the stuffy people are playing video games and they're opening up uh, opportunities for more fans to come watch the Masters? It just doesn't seem as stuffy. It's a whole new world out there and I love it. I mean it's it's just like Twitter and everything has made the fan more involved. Here we go, Masters finally opening that door, gonna get some fans there, can buy tickets, play the video games. I, I think it's great finally. Speaking of the Masters, back in nineteen eighty six, one of the great sport accomplishments of all time, forty-six year old Jack Nicholas. Won his sixth green jacket, his last uh, grand slam. My conversation with him back in 2008, that's coming up in segment four. But next, Maury Brown, what are the top sports business stories of the year in Major League Baseball? We'll break those down. That's coming up next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back.
0: This is Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. More of the show is coming up. I gave you reasons.
1: Has your big toe ever had a gout flare? If you've experienced intense pain, tenderness, and swelling in the joints of your big toe, you might be suffering from gout, a medical condition related to arthritis. If you have gout, there are various research studies going on right now that may need your help. One of the studies needs men and women at least 50 years old who have a history of chronic gout, suffer from cardiovascular disease such as a heart attack, chest pain, unstable angina, or complications due to diabetes. Another needs people who have suffered from chronic gout and have been told by a health care provider that they have decreased kidney function. Yet another needs men and women at least 18 years of age who have suffered no more than two gout flares in their lifetime and have never taken medication for gout. If you suffer from gout, call 877-859-7560 or log on to goutstudynow.com forward slash SBR to see if you may qualify for one of these studies. That's 877-859-7560. That's 877-859-7560. Back to Sports Business Radio
0: with Brian Berger.
1: My guest is Maury Brown. He's the president of the Business of Sports Network. You can find him on Twitter at BizballMaury. Maury, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio.
2: Hey, Brian, it's always a pleasure. How are you doing today?
1: Doing great. Uh, Baseball season underway, and there are some big storylines as we start the baseball season, and I wanted to have you on to discuss some of those. Let's start with a few very shaky ownership situations. First of all, we've got the Mets in New York. What's the latest there, and are we going to see impact on the field?
2: Well, I don't think you're going to see impact on the field, Brian. I think that there's definitely a lot of pressure that's going to mount over the next few months on the Will Ponds and Saul Katz, basically Sterling Equities that own the Mets. Um, you're just starting to see, you know, whether it's the Madoff scandal. You know, they're they're trying to basically recoup a billion dollars now. They they couldn't get a settlement deal worked out. Um, the trustee for the Madoff uh, state basically is trying to get a billion dollars out of them. And then when you look at how attendance has been the last few seasons, um, they're really hurting in that regard. And so uh, if they, you know, they have a, a stadium debt obligation payment that's coming up. You know, they have player payroll to deal with. They're trying to get minority ownership in. Um, to basically stem some of this red ink. And if that doesn't come about you know, fairly quickly, I think they're going to be in hot water, you know, given maybe by the All-Star break.
1: Well, and I was surprised, too. They buy out Luis Castillo, where they owe him $6 million for basically going to another team. And then I think it was Oliver Perez who they, they bought out as well. You don't have that kind of money to burn. What are they doing?
2: Well, they can write it off. I mean, you can do it basically as a sunk cost. I mean, that's the thing that's kind of amazing with baseball and how they can juggle the books. You know, they'll write it off as a sunk cost and and try and get around it from that perspective. But I think it was thinking about this in terms of, you know, they're, they're not going to get this turned around right away. You know, even if they were to somehow prove to be miraculous in the standings, you're not going to see the benefits of that. Uh Those attendance balances until much later, and they've, you know, already got obligations to try and pay off. So... I think that that's what this was a large part of, it's correcting a uh, bloated payroll that they had for a considerable period of time, but needing to do so now, not because it you know made good fiscal sense, but because they need to, and that's never a position you want to be in.
1: What about uh, minority ownership? I mean, we saw that they may be looking for an investor at 25%, and it seems like no one's interested at 25% because they have no say in anything. I mean, you're getting a nice suite and a good parking spot, and beyond that, you know, you're not really getting much. Where does that go? Do you think that eventually someone other than the Will Ponds is going to own this team?
2: Well, I mean, that I think would be the position that you would work from, right? I mean, you would sit there and go, look, you've got an ownership that's distressed. Let's get our foot in the door right now as a minority ownership and maybe even have language, you know, far be it for me to see, you know, how this is working through Allen and company, who's basically brokering this deal for, for the Mets. But you might have some kind of situation to where, uh, you get right a first refusal to basically buy out, buy out the, the majority stake in the club and basically work it from that perspective. Um, it doesn't sound like SNY or a percentage of that is going to be a part of the, part of the makeup in this. It sounds like shareholders aren't interested in that. And it is difficult. Um, the Sports Business Journal reported that those that have been looking at the books, you know, quote unquote, weren't exactly thrilled with them. You know, whether that's everybody or not, I don't know. But just very shaky ground right now for for the Mets.
1: Okay, let's talk about the Dodgers in Los Angeles. Uh, we know the well-documented divorce of the McCourts and the battle for the team. They didn't do much as far as signing free agents or making trades in the offseason. Uh, what happens with the Dodgers' ownership situation, and how does it play out on the field?
2: Well, I mean, the, the most interesting thing is, is you know, you lost kind of a marketing piece in, in Manny Ramirez. Um, they're going to try and leverage, you know, this is the 20-year the anniversary, or 30-year anniversary, I'm sorry, of the last time they won the World Series, so they're going to try and leverage that. Um, they did just reach a sponsorship deal with the United Airlines. They're going to basically make the entire suite level at Dodger Stadium, the United Airlines suite level. And that's a big deal because it's a huge swath. I mean, for anybody that's been up there or been in Dodger Stadium and been up on the suite concourse, it's a very large area that sweeps basically from base uh, from first to third base. So that's kind of a big deal. Um, it they are in a position to where there's not a whole lot to look forward to. If there's an advantage for the Dodgers it's this, they have incredible brands still, you know, I mean the Dodgers are are, are considered to be a, a very strong brand, even with all of this going on. Um fans will go to Dodger Stadium because it's a jewel of of all the ballparks, certainly on the west coast, it's and in, in, in all of baseball and the weather's good. So you get that, where in some other markets, you know, if this kind of thing hits them it's gonna be harder. Uh, you know, it, it's going to wear them out over time. I, I, I don't see how this comes to any kind of happy ending. Um, baseball's going to have some new debt, uh, debt rules in place, and McCourt's already bumped up against some of this stuff. They can't. He was trying to get loans. The banks wouldn't approve him. So, you know, this could be another situation where we're watching the McCourts on, you know, the quote-unquote death watch on how long they can basically hold on to uh, the organization.
1: We're joined by Maury Brown. He's the president of the Business of Sports Network. Find him on Twitter, at BizBallMori. Maury... If I'm Bud Selig, I'm sitting in my office this week, and I have my head in my hands at the embarrassing details that have come out in the Barry Bonds trial, when the Giambi brothers get up and talk about the fact that they did, in fact, use steroids, and you're talking about syringes, and you're talking about you know things that are very humiliating for Barry Bonds, such a black eye for baseball, the trial's going to continue, and then in July. It's Roger Clemens' turn, and more embarrassing details to come in that trial. This has got to be really tough for baseball, but you know, as I've said for years and years, they did this to themselves.
2: Yeah, I think if there's one thing to take away from this, though, Brian, is if you are going to spin this, You know, and, and I'm not the PR department for, for Major League Baseball, but what they would say is, look... You know, a lot of this was occurring, uh, before we had a solid drug testing policy in place. Um, there haven't been any star players, you know, minus Manny Ramirez's situation. And that wasn't, you know, a, a clear slam dunk even when he was caught, um, and tested positive. But we, we've really seen a decline in the, in the number of positive tests and, and, and a large talk about this. I mean, you just don't hear about it much over the next, you know, last season or even with the season coming up this situation kind of is more of where we were in the past and where the game was before, which is certainly embarrassing. I mean, it's not to diminish that, but baseball will probably be looking at this going, look, you know, this is the reason we put the policy in place that we have. And we're, you know, trying to continue to move that forward and trying to strengthen that policy to move away from an issue like this. Um... You know, and you mentioned Roger Clemens and whatnot. I mean, the bigger thing, I think, from this these guys' perspective is how it's going to influence the Hall of Fame. And, I mean, it becomes very difficult when you've got a guy that just shattered the home run record and you've got a pitcher that was clearly, you know, probably would have went in on a first ballot, maybe the greatest was deemed to be the greatest pitcher of this generation and you're going to have writers having to figure out how to deal with them and getting them into the hall of fame if they get in at all so well if they're that, convicted think, how, how do, do you the let letter them letter. in Maury? if they're convicted you you can't let them in right no no if they're convicted i don't think you can and even is you know and knowing some of the writers more now than over the past few years you know when they hear this stuff and read this stuff it's going to be very difficult you know we've a lot of the fans have thought about this, and certainly, you know, there's been this, you know, this sense that that there was cheating going on. That it would be hard not to be, and then there was certainly Book of Shadows against Bonds, but you know, this kind of brings it all to light when you hear this testimony and whatnot. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, whether how Andy Pettit factors into this, who has a large amount of credibility, even though he was caught. Uh, or basically admitted to using hgh so well yeah you you can tell at the
1: trial this week whether it was kimberly bell whether it was stan conte who's now the trainer for the dodgers or whether it was the giambi brothers they are clearly uncomfortable on the stand giving this testimony they don't want to be there but the bottom line is is every time they open their mouths it looks more incriminating for bonds and i think it's humiliating for baseball because what it's done is like you said we've seen the decline in performance-enhancing drug use in the last few years, but it's unearthing all of this and bringing it back to the front pages and even engaging the casual fan because of the fact that the testimony is so sensational.
2: Well, absolutely. And I mean, it, you know, and I, it, an interesting character in all this is, is, is certainly Victor Conte, who ran Balco. And right. He's somebody that I've talked to and, and, and have talked to on numerous occasions. And it's, you know, it's amazing, you know, that the the policy can be gotten around it's more difficult now than it's been but there's always this question as to um whether the those making the designer drugs are ahead of the testing program or whether the testing program is just there basically is you know, lip service to basically say they have something. So this is the stuff that you know I'm sure baseball doesn't want to see, and I'm hoping that they're going to get this in the rearview mirror sometime soon.
1: All right, before I let you go, let's talk about the fact that you know Major League Baseball they've got their collective bargaining agreement expiring. No one's really talking about them because we're all so focused on the NFL and the NBA. What's the latest with that collective bargaining agreement? Are we looking at a at a scenario where later in the year, when it expires, I think in December, that uh, uh, they could have a stoppage
2: no i wouldn't i wouldn't expect to see a stoppage and there's nothing that's that's basically been said that or any of the issues that would lead one to think that they were going to see something like that, um, the current agreement that we 're under basically was reached in October before uh, December deadline the last time that they were reached and it wouldn 't surprise me to see that again. Um, the bigger things the the more interesting thing that 's come up and we 've talked about the Mets and the Dodgers, and there was certainly the Texas Rangers before with their auction sale and the debt that was going on is that right now in conjunction with the, with the players association. Bud Selig is implementing a plan that will basically re, reestablish how clubs are able to carry debt. Now, Currently, clubs are able to carry about 10 times uh, what they pull in in terms of their debt before um, earnings, interest, amortization, uh, beta is what it's called, but basically uh, some of those factors, taxes and whatnot. And what it'll be now is that uh, they're, they're going to put in a new deal that will basically uh, – Quash that and basically have it be the amount of debt that they carry versus the capital. So, um, that's a big deal. You know, the fact that they, and the other thing was that holding companies, which is what got the Rangers in so much hot water, you know, they said clubs couldn't carry X amount of debt, but that didn't mean that a holding company above it couldn't. And that's what got the Rangers in, in trouble. So that's kind of a new thing and it's something that's going to be brokered with the players the other thing was is that we had a new concussion policy that's just been implemented that was a partnership with the players and i think that this shows kind of where they're at compared to other sports leagues right now, and so very much working in tandem. And that lends itself to seeing a collective bargaining agreement being reached without any acrimony.
1: Well, that's certainly good news. Last question for you. I know you do some work for Forbes uh, Sports Money. Valuations for teams, you guys just released those. They're up 7% across the board. That's got to be good news for baseball owners.
2: Well, it's an interesting thing about it is that really what did this was, you know, uh, escalators in Sullivan deals, national television contracts, and the growing um, part of MLB advanced media and how that continues to be a cash cow for a league, which basically bolsters everybody. I think the thing surprising was is that the Dodgers actually saw a considerable increase in value, even in the midst of this McCourt situation, and the Mets saw a decline, and the, the one that was probably the most troubling was that they that in terms of operating income, you know, which is a form of profit, Um, The Tigers were shown to be running very deep in the red. But there were only three clubs that were shown to be running basically in the red. Everybody else is making considerable gains. I'm sure that within the next five or six years, you might even see the Yankees over the $2 mark. mark. Attendance numbers, the early ticket numbers that are basically being released by the league and by some of the clubs show that we could be in store for a, a big attendance increase. That all bodes well with when we're talking about this team's not being able to carry debt. Um, that'll increase the value of these clubs, and that makes you know all these owners happy and make others that want to maybe get skin in the game uh, show more interest.
1: That's Maury Brown. He's the president of the Business of Sports Network. Find him on Twitter, at BizBallMaury. Maury, always enjoy our conversation. Thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio.
2: Brian, always a pleasure.
1: You're listening to Sports Business Radio. I'll be right back. This is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. Every championship team has one thing in common, good coaching, And I want to be your coach, your media coach. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR Director Lee Weinstein to form New School Media Coaching. New School Media Coaching uses a fresh and interactive approach for educating our clients about dealing with today's media landscape. Whether you're an athlete, a coach, or a front office executive in the sports or business world, we'll prepare you for communications with the masses in today's social media world where everything is on the record. And just like any good coach, we'll help you practice your new skills and we'll be there to provide constructive feedback every step of the way. With a combined 40 years of experience, we're veteran coaches, but we use a new school approach. For an overview and a list of our services, visit newschoolmediacoaching.wordpress.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com
0: one on one with those making the big time decisions that impact
1: your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio, Sports Business Radio. My guest is Jack Nicholas. He's the winner of a record 18 major championships. He's the CEO of the Nicholas Company and a goodwill ambassador for the game of golf. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. So i got to tell you, in doing my research for this interview, I was struck by what an amazingly busy schedule you keep. You just finished hosting the memorial. You're the head of the Nicholas Companies. You travel to dozens of countries every year designing courses for Nicholas Design, and you somehow find time to spend quality time with your wife, your children, your 21 grandchildren. You seem to be working more now than you were when you were playing regularly. Where do you get all this energy?
3: (laughs) If I don't, if I don't keep the energy up, you know, you, they they put you away, and uh, you know, sort of, or they farm you out or something. Brian, I, I don't know. I've always had energy. I've always been sort of uh, one of those kids when I was growing up that I got up in the morning and I came in at night and my mom grabbed my ears, you know, right. And uh, but I, that's, I've always had to be doing something. And I, you know, people always say, "Well, gosh, you know, you." How do you do all this stuff? I said, well, you know, you got to remember, I was playing twenty five weeks a year. I was traveling tournament golf and spending a week at a place. I don't do that anymore. I've got twenty five free weeks now, right? And uh, so I'm going to fill them. I I enjoyed filling them up and working and doing things. And it's uh, you know, most people work all their life to retire to play golf. I play golf all my life to retire to work. Right, and so and so I kind of enjoy that, and I've got the grandkids are growing up. My, my oldest just graduated from high school last last week, and so uh, we're not. Uh, I, I'm watching them in high school athletics, and I'll watch some of them with college and in the future. And so we're, uh, we're we're pretty active.
1: It's an exciting time for you, I'm sure. You're an incredible goodwill ambassador for the game of golf. You remain close to the United States Golf Association. As an endorsee of the Royal Bank of Scotland, you've entered into a deal that puts the USGA and the RBS together in a business relationship. The four-year agreement with the USGA features a number of components that will be integrated across all USGA championships, including the US Open and the US Women's Open. So now RBS has ties to three of golf's four majors, is the official patron sponsor of the British Open Championship. And the PGA Championship. Can you explain this new partnership between the RBS and the UGA, and what your role is going to be uh, going forward?
3: Well, you know the RBS has been involved with the British Open for over a hundred years, right? And they they part of what they uh, have done. They've been a you know they were called the, where they were still are, the Royal Bank of Scotland. They felt like Royal Bank of Scotland was a little bit restrictive uh, since they, they became the uh, I think I think the third largest bank in Europe. And now they're the fourth-largest bank in the world or the sixth-largest bank in the United States. And my role was to help them trans, the transition from the World Bank of Scotland to RBS. And they used me as that vehicle. And so uh, through the advertising and promotion of, of my involvement with them, uh, you know I think a lot of people realize that, that RBS is a pretty significant uh, player in the United States today
1: absolutely and so
3: and part of that has been all through the game of golf so the natural relationship of being involved with the british open uh they wanted to expand that to be involved with golf's best so they want to be involved with the usga and the pga and and, then their championships also and they are and you know i'm sort of that vehicle to uh bring them together from the game of golf and uh It's been a very nice relationship. It's been great for me, and and I'm sure it's been great for RBS, or they wouldn't continue to have me.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I love the commercials that they've done with you, too. I think those are great. You know, I look at what you've done and just what you've meant to the game of golf, not only when you played, but now you have Nicholas Design. It's an incredibly successful golf course design company. You've designed courses in 45 countries around the world. There's 300 Nicholas courses. Uh, You're designing 100 more And between what you're doing with the USGA to promote the game of golf and these courses you're designing, what a legacy you're leaving for future golfers.
3: Well, you know, it's a game that gave me so much, and it's a game that uh, I want to continue to be part of and continue to grow with it. Uh, One of the neat things about the things I'm doing is that, uh, you know, we're actually working in 29 new countries now, as well as all the other countries we've been working in. Wow. And... You know, we go into these countries, and and a lot of them, were the first golf course in that country.
1: That's got to be and, fun, and uh, and
3: to have the op the op- the opportunity to form the sh- the and uh, and, can, and sort of uh, formulate the sh- the shape of what that game is going to be in that country, and its future is is kind of uh, kind of fun to go into, into mostly Eastern Bloc now with this country we're going into Russia, Poland, you know, uh, Bulgaria, Ukraine, all all the way down through. Uh, romania and czech republic so forth and so on uh, all those are all new places and you know to, they all will grow up now on a pretty decent golf course and and the young people that come from there will uh, be able to compete around the world and uh, make the game more of a global game continue to grow it and uh, uh, that's kind of fun to be part of that
1: i've got to ask you a question as a designer you're the greatest goal for whoever lives so when you're designing a course How do you put yourself in someone like my shoes? I'm a duffer. And when you're designing these holes, how do you think in terms of someone like me instead of Jack Nicklaus, greatest golfer who ever played?
3: Well, I think that you, you know, I've done, uh, we've done over 300 golf courses. So I think when you start to look at it, you pretty well figure out that who's going to play it. And, you know, only 1.8% of your play is played from the back tees. So you're really designing the golf course for 98.2% of the people. And so you really better be designing for the member's teams because that's where your bread and butter comes from. And so you've got to figure out how do, they, how do you, is the average golfer hit it, how do, how do the women hit it, how do juniors, how do beginners. You've got to try to figure out how that's going to work and you just keep, keep working with it and try to play them around. I mean, some of the first golf courses I did, were very difficult golf courses because they were done for tournament golf. Right. And, uh, you know, like Newfield is, is a difficult golf course, Shoal Creek, Castle Pines, they they're all done for tournament golf. Well, then then all of a sudden I, I figured out, I said, you know, I'm really not designing this golf course for one week a year. I should be designing this golf course for 51 weeks a year, right? And adapting it to a tournament. I think if I look back at Augusta, I think Augusta was that. Augusta is a wonderful golf course. It's a wonderful members' golf course. All they did was move the tees back and hide the pins, and they played the Masters. So that philosophy I've always thought has been pretty darn good. And you know, it worked for the Masters and was successful. Why not try to try to take it forward? So I try to look at that kind of a, kind of a thing and what I'm designing, and I think it's. Uh, I think it's been successful. We we sometimes don't don't get it right every time, but a lot of times we do. And uh, I think we've got a lot of people that uh, have enjoyed our golf courses and enjoy uh, uh, playing them and and and, uh, and living there. So it's uh, uh and it's, and it's been fun to be able to be part of it.
1: I would imagine that people find you if someone wants to hire Jack Nicholas to design their course. How does that process take place? I mean, I see your website, and obviously you've got a pristine reputation, but. You know, these people in third-block countries, eastern-block countries, how do they find you and bring you in to design their courses?
3: Well, they, they, they figure it out somehow. They, <laughs> they, get, they get to us, And, you know, most of the stuff comes into the office. All that we do have, we have an, we, I have an office in Moscow, and i got an office in hmm. Brussels. we got an office in uh, Seoul, an office in Hong Kong, and Beijing, uh, 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 South Africa, uh representatives in Argentina and I've got people in all parts of the world. And so, you know, they, and and we are doing golf courses in all parts of the world. So people generally figure out that hey, Jack's doing a golf course in uh in China, we ought to be able to figure out where's he doing in China? We talk to those people. Or we talk to we're going a golf course in Russia. How do we talk to those people over there if we want one in in Bulgaria, you know, I mean, they they figure out how to get to us otherwise, uh, and our people are always uh, prospecting, and frankly, you know, the internet's been a great source of our business. Hmm. Uh, I would say that uh, 10 years ago, we got, oh, maybe 5% of our leads off of the internet, and I'd say today, we probably get 60, 70% of our leads off the internet.
1: Wow, that's amazing. I would have never guessed that.
3: I wouldn't have either, but it, it actually is a fact.
1: That's great. My guest is Jack Nicholas. Mr. Nicholas, there's lots of talk, obviously, about Tiger Woods eventually breaking your record of 18 major championships. Tiger sits at 13 right now as we speak. A remarkable stat that very few people realize is that you finished second 19 times out of the 162 majors you played in. So if you won half of those, You'd have 28 major championships. I think what Tiger's doing is incredible, but I mean, let's be realistic here. If you had 28 majors, we wouldn't talk about Tiger breaking your record at all. Who faced the stiffer competition, you or Tiger? For my well, for my vote, I, you did.
3: Well, thank you. I, but first of all, I failed 19 times. Then that's sort of the way I look at it, uh, Brian. I mean i i got I got beat, I failed 19 times where I where I came close, and I I won 18 times. So. Uh, but but you know you, you're going to lose sometimes when you're in, when you're in contention and you're going to, and I think that the, the the competition that I had I think there it was very difficult I mean and the the reason I think it was difficult is because we had fewer really good players and but the real, but the good players we had all learned how to win and they'd all won five six seven eight nine majors you know Arnold and Gary and uh, Trevino and Watson those guys all knew how to win and if I was if I slipped up they were ready to play. Uh, the problem today is that we have we have Tiger and then we have so many other really, really good players, but there's just not enough, they don't get enough exposure of winning to really uh, feel confident coming down the stretch that they're going to make it happen so i I don't know really how to answer the question properly uh, you know there are probably more good players today, but yet uh, ours have had the experience to learn how to win so it's just it's you know you just, you don't know really what is right. We hear
1: the story about a young Tiger taping a sheet with your stats on his bedroom wall and kind of being fixated on catching you someday. Who was the guy that you were maybe fixated on? Was it Arnold Palmer as you were growing up and you said, that's who I want to be or that's who I want to break all of his records?
3: Well, Bobby Jones actually was I, – I, Bobby Jones won the U.S. Open at Scioto in 1926. And I grew up at that. I started playing golf course in 1950, and there were many golfers that are members of that club that were there when Jones won, including my father. And uh, uh, so I never heard anything other but Jones, Jones, Jones. And I never really thought anything about breaking any records. It was never – we didn't have that kind of pressure. Tigers had it on from day one. But, I mean, it wasn't until 1970 that I won my 10th major – and I walked in the press room, and Bob Green of the AP said, Jack, that's ten majors you won now. Congratulations, you only got three more to tie Bobby Jones. I said, what? I mean, I, to be very honest, you, I had never counted them. I never even dreamed of it, never even entered my mind. And I, I never thought Bobby Jones' 13 majors was, was, it was uh, you know, approachable. And then all of a sudden, I was three away from it, then I actually focused on it. And uh, then when I focused on it, and I got past it, and, uh, you know, I, I just played, uh, tried to win what I could after that, and, uh, uh, but you pretty much, you know, once you pass something, you lose your drive to go on. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I wanted to play golf. I just didn't, uh, I, I didn't drive as hard as I did when I was younger. But uh, you know, I'm, my record is what it is. I certainly, I, I certainly wish. Uh, I'm quite happy with what it is. Do I wish it was more? Sure. Now I do. Sure. But how did I know? Bob, how did I know Tiger Woods was going to come along? Or how did Bobby know, and Jones know Jack Nicklaus was going to come along? You know, it it really isn't. It really isn't important. Uh, Tiger is a great player. He's uh, he's doing and he's dominating the game today. He's uh, he's a nice young man. He's uh, handles himself well. The game's in good hands. So if he breaks my record, you know more power to him. I just want to be the first one to shake his hand. And obviously nobody wants their records to be broken, but you know. I think it brings more excitement into the game to have uh, have Tiger chasing my record. Obviously, it puts my name in the newspaper every day right beside his. So you know, it's not it's not all that bad for me either. So, uh, but it's uh, it's kind of exciting. It's kind of fun to watch him play. He's he's a very very talented young man and uh, uh, fun to watch.
1: One of the things that's so different, obviously, today is compared to when you played. The prize money. I mean, Tiger's made ninety three million dollars. On the tour, you won 113 tournaments and you earned a little bit less than $6 million in your entire career on the tour. Obviously, I would guess you're earning a lot more than that with Nicholas Design and your other endeavors now, but do you ever look back and just go, gosh, I played in the wrong era. I could be making a lot more money now with 113 victories.
3: Well, I think Ben Hogan actually looked like he thought maybe he played in the wrong era. Yeah, no I kidding. Think his, his total, I think his total lifetime earnings were like 241000 Wow. So, I mean, if you really look at that, I mean, it's just times change. And, you know, I'm, what I look at is I think that the kids today are really blessed. They have the opportunity to play golf for a living. And we played golf and had to be successful so we could go make a living. You know, I mean, with outside things, you never made a living on a golf course when we played. Right. And today the kids can actually play Play golf and, and and don't have to do anything else. They can play golf and make a living. That's and I think that's neat. And we were the forerunners of that. We, uh, you know, the group in front of us, the 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 uh, the Hogan's and the Nelsons and the Speeds uh, were the forerunners of that. And then we came in and then we were the ones that started to get it to the next level. And then Tiger and his group are taking it to the next level. And I think it's I think it's great for the game.
1: Jack, Father's Day is next weekend. All four of your sons work for you, and you won your last major in 1986, the Masters, with your son, Jack, carrying your bag for you. That had to have been a wonderful thrill. Talk about the wonderful bond that you've built with your sons. You know, honestly, I see a lot of athletes who play and they're so involved in their athletic endeavors that their relationship with their family suffers. And I've got to tip my hat to you because you seem like you're so close with your family. And I think that's just so admirable.
3: Well, that's always been the most important thing in my life, Brian. I'm uh, my wife and I grew up in the Midwest in Ohio. We both have same same values. We both felt like we both came from close families, and we both felt like family was the most important thing. And you know, I, you know, I, I, I probably could have won a lot more tournaments if I'd have, if I'd have sort of been selfish enough to leave my family. But I just didn't want to do that. My family is what I wanted to be part of, and. uh uh, my kids are all working with me. they're all doing things that are similar to what i do they They're all trying to handle their kids the way uh, you know I handle them, which makes me proud uh you know i've i've got I've got a good group of kids and uh, they uh, uh and they're good citizens and they and they do well and i'm and I think that's what my wife and I are most proud of
1: right i mean it's just it's just such a wonderful trait and quality that you have and think of all the the generations that you've affected. Last question for you. Obviously, you've played the game of golf all your life. Uh, you've been there with golf during some incredibly joyous moments, like we discussed with the 1986 Masters, but golf has been an outlet for you for some incredibly somber moments as well. What are the main lessons the game of golf can teach us if we play, pay close enough attention?
3: Well, I think the game, the game is a, a game that you, you, you get out of it what you put into it. And you get... Uh, uh, you know, you, you get you develop relationships with people. I think you play eighteen holes of golf with somebody, you get to know them pretty well.
1: You're exactly uh, right.
3: Yeah, you you know what, what kind of a sport they are. You know what kind of a personality they got. You know whether they're a hothead or or whether they they will enjoy the game for the game or they're or they're or they're just. They're driven by total competition or they're driven for greed or whatever they're driven by. And you find that out pretty quickly on the golf course. So it's a, it's a great game for that. It's a great game for, for people. It's a great game for, for, for a father to play with a son. It's a great fi- game for a grandfather to play with his grandson or granddaughter. And, you know, it can be played by all walks of life and people of all handicaps and all abilities. So it's, it's just a marvelous game. And it's, uh, there's not many games like that uh so uh to be to be fortunate enough to be involved in that game all my life has been a very very special thing for me and it's uh uh you know if it, and you meet the same people on the way down that you meet on the way way up brian you you know that and uh, so you better you better watch your p's and q's on the way up because you're gonna You're going to have to eat them on the way down if you haven't handled it right.
1: Well, it's great, great advice, and uh, it's such an honor to speak with you. You've always conducted yourself in such a wonderful manner on and off the course, and I really wish you the best in all of your endeavors moving forward. Thank you, Brian. Nice to talk with you. Good to talk to you, too. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back.
3: Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, hold my hand.
1: Has your big toe ever had a gout flare? If you've experienced intense pain, tenderness, and swelling in the joints of your big toe, you might be suffering from gout a medical condition related to arthritis. If you have gout, there are various research studies going on right now that may need your help. One of the studies needs men and women at least 50 years old who have a history of chronic gout, suffer from cardiovascular disease, such as a heart attack, chest pain, unstable angina, or complications due to diabetes. Another needs people who have suffered from chronic gout and have been told by a health care provider that they have decreased kidney function. Yet another needs men and women at least 18 years of age who have suffered no more than two gout flares in their lifetime and have never taken medication for gout. If you suffer from gout, call 877-859-7560 or log on to goutstudynow.com forward slash SBR to see if you may qualify for one of these studies. That's 877-859-7560. That's It's
0: 877-859-7560. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger.
1: Well, congratulations to Linda Dowden for winning the Sports Business Radio March Madness Bracket Challenge. She correctly picked UConn to win all of it. And she was the only one in our field who had UConn. Griggs? You took the top spot amongst our SBR team. You narrowly uh, defeated me. But uh, good showing for you. Uh, that's bragging rights for you for the next year. Yeah, you know, uh, my bracket was absolutely terrible. So that says something about your bracket. <laughs> and all the other SBR You know team, what? But mine on. was better. I finished in the top 10 this year, which usually I'm towards the basement yeah, of yeah. our pool with all of our listeners. And uh, I'm happy with the top 10 finish. If I can do that every year. I'll take it. Yeah, and I would have never picked UConn and Butler before the tournament started, no so uh, congratulations and thanks for all who entered. A lot of thank yous on the show this week. Maury Brown from the Biz of Baseball. Great to look back on my conversation with Jack Nicholas. What a class act. They don't make him like Jack Nicholas anymore. Our show staff, Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, Jared Melzer, Patrick O'Neill, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harrison, Doug Zanger. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Click on the iTunes icon on the front page of sportsbusinessradio.com to have our show podcast downloaded to your iTunes every week. We'd love it if you post a review of our podcast on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at SBRadio. It's been a wonderful seven years. I hope we have a long time more on this show. Thanks for listening. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week. You've been listening to Sports. Business Radio. I got, I got some pictures on my phone, new names and numbers that I don't know. Address to places like I or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio.